Hello and welcome to Elfonomics, the podcast with me, Elf Lyons, and my dad, Dr. Jared Lyons, where we explore and answer my big economic questions, the things that make me tick and make me go, oh, I'll ask my dad that and see what he thinks. Today's episode combines two things that me and my dad both love. The first for me is buying things, and for my dad, China. And when I say China, I mean the country, not the beautiful porcelain that I often smash because I am a clumsy sausage. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello, Dad. Hello, Ebony Ann. Thank you for joining me in this little room for this episode. So this is an exciting episode because it combines the things that we love, China and me buying things off the internet. I have such an addiction to Etsy and buying things online. My flat is full of tit, tat and toot. I currently am obsessed with Toby jugs. And if you don't know what a Toby jug is, they're these porcelain jugs with very stretched man's faces on them. They're always the same bloke, but he's either a priest or a shepherd or a sailor. They are in some ways harrowing, but I just cannot stop buying them. My maisonette looks like it should be owned by a 90-year-old Satanist because there are so many weird things that I found off the internet. Crocheted guinea pigs that look like something you'd use in a sacrifice, beautiful ceramics in the shapes of genitals, which are meant to do with the feminist, feminine womb fairies, loads of sort of weird crucifixes, which I thought were wonderful, but make my ex terrified, especially when I walk around the house reenacting my favourite scenes from Carrie. I just love buying things off the internet. And I especially love buying from independent shops. Nothing makes me happier when I see it says made in the UK and I go, oh, I'm supporting a small local business and I feel all wonderful in my stomach and then I feel even better for spending more money on, in hindsight, that incredibly terrifying, creepy, evidently haunted doll. But this is what happened last week. I bought myself a rug, Dad. A really cool rug with lots of guinea pigs on it, which I thought was funky and cool. And it said made in the UK. So I was like, it's independent. It's an independent business. Great. It arrived. I turned it over and it said made in China. And I felt deceived because it was evidently not handmade. It was evidently mass produced. And thus, in my heart, felt bad and I felt really awful because for me, when you read, you know, there's this big competition between small business, big business. But when you see something made in China, you often assume cheap, mass produced, possibly, you know, cheap labor. You don't often have the most positive experiences with it. So I wanted to ask about made in China. Mm. Is it good? And does being mass-produced makes something bad. Okay, lots of issues there. Da, 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 da. Da. How many key issues are we going to explore this episode? Let's find out. Yeah, more and more things have been made in China. Um, the Chinese economy started to open up at the end of the 1970s, but it only really started to emerge on the global stage as we move through the 90s and in particular at the turn of this century when China joined the World Trade Organization. And now more and more things are 
made in China. I tended to say that the three key words that dominated last 25 years were made in China. Uh, the three key words that might dominate the next 10 years are bought by China. And then after that, it could well be paid in renminbi, which is the Chinese currency. But mm -hmm. let's see how things change. Why is this the case? Well, when I was a boy, um, often you might see this thing, particularly with toys, made in Hong Kong. Now, countries in the West, Britain included, can compete on price or on quality. You want value for money. But what one often sees, particularly in terms of manufactured goods, is that they go to where things can be produced and then exported from relatively cheaply, which is what we've seen with China, because China benefited from having a huge labor force where wages were quite low. But before I go into such a long answer, it's also worth bearing in mind, China has lots of creativity. There are crafts there. You don't necessarily see them exported from China, but you do see these types of goods if you have the opportunity to visit China. So the things that are exported by their very nature are mass produced. But that doesn't mean that everything that is made in China or that emerges from China is of that ilk. So there is lots of creative products there. You're a China expert, you know, that's what you're really into. Like, I remember when I was little, you were always going to China and then you'd come back from China and I'd always be like, oh, daddy's home. When did you first go to China? Well, I first went to the mainland in 1994, but I first went to Hong Kong back in 1989. Actually, in 1994, I remember when the BA flight was landing, it landed in Beijing and it came to a shuddering halt as the pilot clearly had to put his foot on the brake. And we looked out the window, I was by the window, uh, someone had been cycling on the runway. It was quite bizarre. It was a surreal experience. And then it was a really old terminal building. There were not many flights. There was a dual carriageway into Beijing, which was basically full of, well, actually it was empty of cars. It had various farmers and stuff like it. And the hotel, um, I remember on the Monday morning, rush hour was bikes more bikes than you could ever imagine. If you go to Beijing now, uh, effectively the bikes have almost been displaced. There's about four sort of <laughs> versions of the M25, uh, sort of dual carriageways abound across the city, and the airport is on a huge scale. So I've been going to China a long time, and the pace and scale of change has been significant. In fact, it's a really exciting topic to talk about because China has been a key transformational part of the global economy. We're seeing the shift in the balance of power, not to the Asia-Pacific, but the Indo-Pacific, which, as I define it, would have India on the west and America on the east. It's sort of trans-Pacific. But at the same time, China has produced so many things, which comes back to your initial question, and as you used to say to me, if you turned up your handbag and took everything out of it or dropped everything out of it, so many items in it would have been made in China. So it's impacted us in so many different ways already. I'm fascinated with how China became as big as it is and also whether that is always going to be the case because it always comes back to you always mention this time and time again about our West in obsession with the US and we don't actually focus enough especially positively on what is going on in Asia like economically speaking so before we like go into what is potentially going to happen in the future let's focus back on the past so how did it become as big as it is and when did it establish itself as sort of the big economic dog that it is today okay I'm probably going to go further back than you imagine. 
<gasps> if we go back 250, 300 years ago, before the first industrial revolution, which took place here in the UK, the size of economies across the globe was largely based on their population. And then, obviously, China, if one goes back even further, one to 2,000 years ago, different dynasties, uh, China was already the dominant player. Uh, but then the first industrial revolution came along, and now we're in the fourth industrial revolution. And in that period, the West has been the sort of driver of much of global growth. But what we're now seeing, particularly since the late 70s, has been the emergence of China or the re-emergence of China, as I would call it. China's population is vast. How What's vast? 1.4 billion. Um, 35 years ago, income per head in China was pretty much the same as India. But since then, China has really overtaken even India. There is a significant time issue here. China's population is now peaking. China's population is also old. And its current oh population, 1.4 billion, by the end of this century will be down on many projections to about 850 million. That's a huge change. It used to be the case that 10 years ago, people would ask, would China become old before it was rich? And would China overcome what was called the middle income trap? You can go from low to middle income, I won't say easily, but many countries have been able to do that easily. But not many countries have been able to go from middle income to very high income. Mm -hmm. And that's where China is now. And this is a challenging time from its own domestic perspective, because it's got an older population. It needs to move in its terms away from being the producer of cheap goods and move up the value curve. And What's it's the value curve? I.e. to produce higher quality. So competing on price or quality is about competing more on quality. China is now big in the space age, is big in technology. And so it's trying to move away up the value curve. And then there's another big issue as well in terms of how the rest of the world is seeing China. Yes, because this is it. Because made in China is always associated with being Cheap. cheap, yes. And that is actually, when you type in Etsy, again, one of my favourite websites of all time, is the current criticism that seems to come up is how... Because it used to be that you couldn't actually register on Etsy if you were a Chinese business, if you were mass-produced. If it was mass-produced, you couldn't come on. But now lots of people criticising that they feel like they're being duped into buying something and then finding out it's being made in China or made in mass. So made in China used to be associated with being cheap. Is that still the case? Yeah, well, China is a vast country and inland China is much cheaper than the coastal areas. Cheaper how? Because still has a vast labour force. For instance, just prior to the pandemic, the data in the year before the pandemic, because data has been distorted a lot in the last couple of years, if you took manufactured goods, and often this debate we're talking about is goods, not services. Britain and America are big service economies. China is more, we saw China as a manufacturing economy. But back in 2018-19, the price per hour of producing something in China was five and a half dollars. In Mexico, it was $4.45. In Vietnam, $2.73. So China has become more expensive than some other emerging economies. 10 years and 20 years ago, China was a fraction of that, uh, less than the dollar per hour that you were paying in manufacturing. But within China, there's a big difference between inland areas which are cheap, or take the area around Hong Kong, which is called the Greater Bay Area, the GBA. Nine cities on the mainland, plus Macau and Hong Kong, 
is going to be at the top end of quality technology, financial services. So within China, there's a vast difference. Because when you say cheap labour, not cheap labour, but cost per hour, does it not just mean that it's really bad care for the worker? Because I'm naturally, I'm just assuming cheap labour, terrible working conditions, awful hours. When something's mass produced, you often have the assumption that terrible factories, people dying, terrible fumes, awful. And that tends to be people's global perception of what a lot of factories are, especially when you think about fast fashion. You look at the working conditions of the people making those clothes. I'm going to say categorically, they're not having a great time. So when you assume small businesses, you're paying more and you're paying more because you assume, hopefully, that they're having a better working experience. The quality of life is better. So is this the case or is this an old stereotype? I think it was certainly the case some time ago, after China's entry into the World Trade Organization, and as the economy has become bigger and more important, the argument is that quality control would have improved. But let's not kid ourselves. We're going to see a wide variety of examples here. Now, the challenge is that Western companies should really be checking out their supply chains, Mm -hmm. not just in case of China, but Bangladesh, Vietnam, other low-cost producers. And indeed, it's not just countries in Asia or South Asia. In the next 20 years, it will be a greater focus on Africa. Africa's working age population over the next 16 years, so people already born but below the age of 16, so they will come into Africa's working age group. Africa's working age population goes up by more that of China and India combined in the next 16 years. So we're seeing this shift across the globe. But there's no doubt that customers in the West need to be more aware of this. You see this very much in the debate on the green agenda. The argument here, and it's a valid one, is that we've exported a lot of our high pollution output to China. And in China, that's moved from the coastal areas to inland. Mm -hmm. Now, the good thing, and this might seem random for some people, but as part of its 14th five-year plan, so every five years the Chinese authorities have an economic plan, the green agenda has become pretty important in China. Uh, You might say they've got a long way to go, but then so does everyone else as well. So I think, coming back to your question, it's a really valid point. Uh, But we're starting to see people changing their behaviour. You might like to think it's because consumers in the West are becoming more discerning about the issues you've addressed. But the actual point is that it's often geopolitics, particularly in the wake of the pandemic, that has started to drive this change. Well, this is it. So during lockdown, because I lost all my work and I went temporarily insane because I was living with you and mum. So I was reenacting a lot of my favourite horror films unintentionally. And I really didn't know what to do with myself. So I became addicted to buying things on the internet because it felt like the only way I had control. So again, buying things that were not necessary, such as some woman had done a painting of Jack Nicholson in the nude. Did I need it? No, but I have it. And it's now one of my favourite gifts to myself of all time. But Etsy, I was thinking about this, is one of the most popular online websites because it was like a humble handmade goods platform from about 16 years ago it started. And it's second most popular marketplace after Amazon. You know, it's overtaken eBay. And people like it because you have a direct relationship to the seller. You can have this conversation. It feels personal even though it's online, even though you're buying something from across the way. Like I bought a handmade rug from India the other day and I've had a lovely conversation with the gentleman who made it for about four months before he sent it over. It feels lovely, this global relationship. 
Etsy changed its most championed value um, back in like 2013, I think, where it allowed sellers to sell manufactured goods. And that was never the case. It was always meant to sell handmade items. And it proved to be a really big stroke of economic financial genius for the company because they saw sales grow from $895 million to $1.3 billion in the same year. But most people you know, people who are buying on the on the website were really disappointed because they felt like the brand was moving away from what it stood for, small businesses. And this is the question, like, it feels like an often a battle between local and global. Yeah. One of the dominant global economic trends in the last quarter century, you could say even longer than that, has been globalisation. Uh, the fact that the global marketplace has meant that we now buy goods and even services from across the globe. And in terms of services, obviously, the internet has helped. Now you're starting to see some reaction to that in the last few years. What one saw as a result of the pandemic, and this might have been evident just before it as well, some aspects of deglobalization. Mm-hmm. The term I would use is fragmentation. Now, that means that producers are not just always seeking out the lowest cost place to produce. They're having to be mindful of consumer attitudes and changing behavior. Then superimpose on that geopolitics and you have something called friendshoring, okay. as in friends. That you, nice. you move your production to friendly countries. Oh. And it echoes. I remember listening to you on Times Radio a year ago and you were talking about the UN vote in the wake of the Ukraine war and how you said it had split three ways. The Allies... Well, the way I would say it, I don't think you use these terms, but it was like group one was America, its allies. Group two, should we say China and its allies. Group three was the non-aligned countries changing behavior. But the friend shoring is that particularly American producers are under pressure to move their production back to friendlier other countries. I guess you could say if there was to be a trade war, then you don't want to get your supply chains disrupted or mucked up by the geopolitics. Well, that's also, I mean, it's happened, obviously, with the war in Ukraine. It's happened, you know, post-COVID, you know, because there was major supply chain disruption because of COVID, um, especially with shipping. And I was reading because according to the New York Times, one change is that in Mexico, a lot of companies from China are setting up shop there. And this idea that maybe we're moving away from made in China, we're moving to things such as made in Mexico. And this idea that maybe the current supply chain of things being all over in lots of different places, so parts are here, parts are there, parts are here, parts might be technically from this company in China, but actually they're being made in Malaysia, technically they're being made here. It's not sustainable. Well, it Things do move around, but it comes back to the point I was saying earlier about the three words made in China being replaced by the three words bought by China. So Chinese companies producing in other parts of the world where it makes more sense for them to do so. Also, a lot does depend on your product and where your main market is. Now, we've talked, all this debate is about goods, manufactured goods, but services are pretty important too. Obviously, there's a different aspect to services, but... The global marketplace for services is something that favours us, maybe in Britain, we're a service sector economy more so than most other countries. What does the service sector economy mean for the, any listeners that do not know, Papa? Well, a good or something like that 
is something you can physically see. A service, you can't physically see it, but be the creative industry. Mm-hmm. It'd be legal profession, consultancy, or financial services. Okay, okay. Something still vitally important that you would pay for, mm-hmm. but you don't export it in the physical presence, although you do sell the service. Now, some really serious questions before we sort of conclude. Um, Dad, I've met economists, and I know you, and one thing that economists love to do is make projections. What is a projection? And why do we listen to them? Because a lot of the time I hear you sometimes talking about someone who's made a projection and you say that projection is all wrong. And more often than not, I seem to find that economists make wrong projections rather than right ones. So can you talk about that, please? Yeah, projections is the word you use. Forecasts would be the term economists use. And forecasting is very difficult, particularly when it's about the future. John (laughs) Kenneth Galbraith, a famous US economist, said economic forecasters are there to make the weather forecasters look good. How do you make a forecast in economics? Because if anyone ever paid a visit to my dad's study, entering a room and then you can't find the door because the door is hidden behind piles and piles of paper and documents and big economic terms. Organised in official Your room is not organised. Your room is... Has anyone seen the film... What? I've been told that I'm not allowed to talk about this, but I'm going to talk about this because I'm quite annoyed because my dad is really difficult to record a podcast with because he doesn't smile. And any listeners who've ever done a comedy gig before, it's really integral that your audience are smiling. Otherwise, it's quite hard to have faith in your own abilities. I once did a gig to two people in Australia and then one of them went to the toilet halfway through the set and I continued to do the show. And to clarify, it was a one-woman production of Swan Lake in an hour in French. So a really hard show to push through with only two people in the audience. But I'm in a... You shouldn't do it at airport lobbies. Ha, 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 ha. (laughs) But I'm currently in a tiny little booth with my father. And yes, he may be tied to the chair, but that is the only way I can get my father to sit and talk to me. I'm focusing, that's why. You're focusing, okay, whatever. But... My dad's office is possibly one of the most stressful places you've ever entered. It is like a scene from an escape room slash a saw horror film in that there are so many academic papers and tomes and information. Like, is there a working pen? No. But is there an amazing report about the Japanese economy from 1985? You bet there is. There is all this bizarre stuff. And then on top of that, the cat just lolling over some economic tome. So when you're when you're preparing to make a forecast, of which you do many for the TV and the radio, um, how do you go about making a forecast? Let's put it this way. If you watch a football match and you have the football commentators in the room, they're often asked what their view of the game is. And sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. But the point is they're doing it from an information set that should be good. But it's, sometimes they should be so certain of the outcome They should emphasise that. Economic forecasting, there are times when you are pretty certain about things. And other times people might ask you your view, but you don't have a certain forecast. But people still want to have your best assessment. Take, for instance, when I worked at a big international bank ahead of the global financial crisis. It was inevitable, in my view, that at some stage there was going to be a major shock, major crisis. So we were basically positioned for that. But the challenge is that you must make sure that you're not like a stopped clock. Stopped clocks are right, depending on the clock, once a day or twice a day. But then, Why would they only be right once a day? 
Oh, digital. Digital. Fair enough. Yeah, as I, opposed I to a standalone clock. But they're no use in helping you tell the time. Yeah. Sometimes people say this certain thing and they stick with it even though it's not happened for year after year after year. So the point is that you'd need to assess all the information available. When it comes to China, it seems to me its pace of future economic growth is going to slow. China is bouncing back this year post-pandemic. Its economy is going to do pretty well. But as its population ages, its pace of growth is going to slow. So it needs to become more productive. And so we, we can make projections based on clear trends. Does that help? I think so. I mean, I'm going to be honest, Eddie. When you started talking about time, I got triggered because I remember when you tried to teach me how to tell the time when I was little and you did it via diagrams and graphs and pie charts. And then you decided to tell me what the history of time was. And then it got very, very complicated. And I was about six. And then mum had to take me into another room and I had to take you away and tell you to calm down and try and make it less complex. And there was no need for me to, again, know about Adam Smith. Um, So when you start talking about the clocks, I'm like, oh, here we go again and this was why at the age of six I said to you I don't need to learn the time I'm just going to marry a man who can tell the time I think we can all agree the most feminist statement I have ever said in my life it was even more complex because you were trying to teach me about Adam Smith and the invisible hand whilst also trying to teach me to tell the time with the two hands so I'm looking at the clock going there are two hands but there's also Adam Smith's invisible hand how does this relate what is going on why do I need to know so much about what happened to Japan in 1985 dad stop giving me these tomes to read I can't read I'm six so after this podcast finishes I'm probably going to go home cuddle my invisible cat play with my invisible hat and maybe go online and look at what is on sale on Etsy right now and look at all the kooky handmade items by lots of lovely small independent businesses but alongside that I've also got my handbag which I didn't buy from Etsy I bought it in an affordable shop if I tip it upside down now what is going to be in it? And where do you think these things are all going to be made from? So we've got my wallet, for example. Well, wallet used to be very much a leather good, but now isn't always a leather good. Leather goods used to be, in Europe, made in places like Italy. Uh, but now what what is seen is you're still having high-end, expensive items like that made in the West, where the crafts and the value-added is there. But you're starting to see more of these actually naturally go eastwards. So something like a wallet could easily still be made in Italy, but more likely will be somewhere in South Asia or across East Asia. I will take out my mobile phone. Where's my mobile phone from? Yeah, mobile phones are interesting because they are made all over the place. And as you start to see globalization replaced by fragmentation and even pl- replaced by friendshoring, you're starting to see more of the value-added component move back to the West. And one of the challenging economic debates at the moment is America is trying to subsidize more production through what's called the IRA bill in order to get more production onshore in America. So something like technology One would naturally think that as China moves up the value curve, they will want to move into technology. For instance, when Trump was president, there was a short trade war with China. And China decided as a result of that to seek self-sufficiency in areas such as food, fuel and technology. So in China, they want more of their mobile phones to be made in China. Here in the UK or the West, we want 
those value added items to come back to the West. A bit like gigafactories, the quality, not that you could get a gigafactory in your handbag, but. Uh, I have no idea what a gigafactory is. <laughs> the electric cars and stuff like that. Oh, right, okay. Something I will never have yeah, because the, I cannot ha- get through a driving test without thinking I'm going to kill someone. Well, the technology, well, nowadays the car will say stop. The technology is from East Asia, Japan, South Korea, or China. So in the West, to actually get the production, all the countries are having to subsidise or entice the production to come to wherever it is, whether it's Coventry, Sunderland, or indeed Berlin or Munich. The point being that when you ask a question about mobile phone, and gosh, this is such a long answer to it, more of that technology in the future, if geopolitics continues as it currently is, will be a two-world environment. If you had your mobile phone in China, the production is likely to come from China. If you buy it in the West, maybe it's going to be coming more from the USA or Mm. South Korea. And finally, if I took out a bobble hat that was made from beautiful wool, where would that possibly be from, Dad? Well, if it was beautiful wool, ideally it'd be from the Highlands, from the crofters in Scotland. But increasingly, um, something like that is from diverse parts of the world, actually. You need a good water supply, uh, but maybe you might see the crofters rediscovering themselves and charging a bit more money as well, hopefully. I really like this game of just asking you where these fictional things from my handbag are. I'm going to do this way more on the way home. So, to clarify, let's wrap this up. The stereotype has always been made in China. Mass producers often quite negative. Cheap labour, bad resources, massly produced, not well done, cheap fast. And actually what you've said through the new movements, the new awareness about the green agenda, the cross-pollination, as it were, the fact that Mm. more countries are having more friendships. I love that. It sounds very non-monogamous with different countries, different communities. Actually, mass-produced just is, again, it's an example of globalisation. The transition we've had, obviously, low-skilled workers in the West saw their wages squeezed. And you started to see lots of people brought out of poverty as they worked in these factories and started to produce items in China or now in Vietnam or Bangladesh. But quality control is key. The garment industry, Bangladesh, there's lots of stories about how we need to be improving that. So quality control becomes important and the displacement effect replaced by greater focus on quality. But at the end of the day, some people will always try and buy things because it's cheap and indeed a debate about the food industry in the West is something we might want to come back to on that. Absolutely. But quality is also important and be mindful about the openness to transparency of who is required to do what so that good or that service is accessible to you. And on that very serious and deep-voiced comment, Baba, we shall end this episode of Elfonomics. Have a lovely day. I'm off to find a Toby jug. (laughs) 